You know, we have certainly learned over the last three and a half years that draining the swamp stirs up animosity. And the uncovering of unlawful activity of a ruling class makes a mess amongst the status quo. And in today's story from the ministry of Jesus Christ, God's Word reveals to us that this is nothing new. It's always been that way. There's always been a swamp that needs to be drained, and anyone with the courage to try to drain it is going to run into animosity from the ones that are skimming off the top and getting the benefit of the swamp they've created. No, this is not a political message about... uh, about President Donald Trump the last nearly four years now draining the swamp. It's about the King of Kings who spent nearly four years draining the swamp in Jerusalem. And by the way, he didn't get it drained. They crucified him at the end of it all. Now, this isn't a sermon about America. This is an amazing story from the life of Jesus Christ of what he did in Jerusalem when he finally came back to that city at the end of his ministry. Are you confused in America today? Are you confused by all the talk of draining the swamp and the deep state and the the political elite and the ones that go to Washington because they're voted to go to Washington and then they become millionaires off your tax dollars and then you pay them for the rest of their natural lives so they can remain millionaires for the rest of their lives? Does that confuse you? Does that bother you? It's not new. It's not new. It was in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. I want you to learn a lesson this morning. You see the bluff, the bottom line up front of the message this morning is stay focused on what Jesus is focused on. Stay focused on what Jesus is focused on. Now, we've got to start uh, again this morning with a little bit of uh, geography and a little bit of history to be able to appreciate this story in the life of Jesus Christ. So we're going to uh, jump back over into Israel for a few moments and uh, just bring ourselves up to speed here. Jesus began and ended his ministry much the same way. As a matter of fact, I'm going to turn back to the Gospel of John, over to the Gospel of John, chapter number 2. Only John records that Jesus started his ministry the same way he ended his ministry. He started his ministry in Jerusalem cleaning the temple, and he ended his ministry in Jerusalem, cleaning the temple. And in between, he spent nearly four years with a message of peace to bring to the nation of Israel. In the beginning of his ministry, Jesus Christ, the first time he went to Jerusalem, after he was baptized, he dealt with the swamp in Jerusalem. Let me read from John 2, verse 13. Here's John's record of what happened almost four years earlier than our text this morning. The Bible says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables." And said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house an house 
of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. That's how Jesus started his ministry nearly 44 years prior to our text this morning. Jesus Christ started his ministry by going to Jerusalem, seeing the mess on the temple platform, and making a whip and overturning tables and driving people off the temple platform. Three and a half years have passed now. Jesus Christ has gone all over Jerusalem, all over Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And now we come to the end of his ministry, and Jesus Christ has just ridden into Jerusalem. In our last message, we saw Jesus Christ crest the Mount of Olives on a colt and ride down through the Kidron Valley and up into the city of Jerusalem. We saw that as Jesus did that, his words and his actions declared that day, I am God, I am the Messiah, and I am greatly opposed by the swamp. And Jesus, when he crested the hill and looked down onto the temple platform, which was lower, the Mount of Olives is up here, the Kidron Valley doesn't come up as high as the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus crested the Mount of Olives, looked down into the platform of the temple, and he broke into sobbing. And we learned in the last message why he sobbed. He wept and sobbed because the people just didn't get it. They wanted a warrior king. He was coming to be a crucified king. And they just didn't get it. And as he looked down onto the temple platform and the hundreds of thousands of people that were camped out everywhere for Passover, he wept over the people. Well, he went on into Jerusalem and on into the temple. And, and for, the, for the next few days, Jesus Christ is going to be involved in ministry here in Jerusalem. I want you to notice in Luke chapter 19, verse number 45, the Bible says, at the first part of verse number 45, he went into the temple and began to cast out them. Come down to verse 47a. And he taught daily in the temple. Chapter 20, verse 1. And it came to pass that on one of those days, uh, as he taught the people in the temple. Now I want you to get an idea of what's going on. From the time Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the day he will be crucified on Friday, Jesus Christ every day goes in and out of Jerusalem. He goes from Jerusalem to Bethany, back to Jerusalem, back to Bethany, back to Jerusalem, back to Bethany. And this goes on all week long. Bethany is a two-mile walk from Jerusalem. Bethany is where his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. He spent the night with his friends in Bethany every night. Every morning he got up from Bethany, walked two miles, crested the Mount of Olives, down and up the Kidron Valley, into the eastern gates, onto the temple platform, and there on the temple platform, he taught every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. He teaches on the temple platform. He ministers to people. The things that he taught are profound. We're going to be, as we continue our study through the life of Christ, we're going to examine what he taught each of those days. What he taught the people during the days leading up to his crucifixion. We've already learned that there has been a controversy between the expected 
and the reality. We learned back in Luke 19:11 that they expected an immediate political kingdom. The reality was he's going to be crucified because he didn't come to produce a kingdom politically. Chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus Christ declared emphatically his purpose in his first coming. He said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what it's all about. I'm not going to start a kingdom politically. I'm going to die on a cross, shed my blood to save people from their sins. The people expected a warrior to deliver them from Rome and bring them freedom and liberty from slavery. But that wasn't the plan. Never was the plan. And Jesus was constantly trying to correct their misunderstandings. And so we have seen this controversy, this contrast between what they expected and what was really going to happen. And Jesus Christ works on that contrast and controversy day after day throughout this week. You know, it's noteworthy when Jesus entered into Jerusalem after weeping on his ride down the slope of the Mount of Olives. Jesus did not go to the Fortress Antonio. Fortress Antonio was right there. That's where the Roman garrison was. He didn't go to Fortress Antonio and attack the Roman army because he didn't come on his first coming as a warrior king. He didn't go to Pilate's palace that was over in this part of Jerusalem and attack Roman's political personage that was appointed to rule over Jerusalem because he didn't come to conquer Rome, militarily or politically. Jesus Christ went to the temple and attacked the heart of Israel's religious worship. Jesus went and attacked Apostate religion. Not politics. He attacked apostasy when he came into Jerusalem. Now Mark, Mark's account adds a, an interesting little piece of detail that Luke glosses over. Luke is giving us a summary. Mark's account in Mark 11.11 11 says that when, Je- when Jesus rode down the Kidron Valley and, and up in, across the Kidron Valley up into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, into the temple, and listen now carefully, and when he had looked round about on all things. Jesus, when he rode on Palm Sunday on that colt that they got at Bethpage, he crested the Mount of Olives and rode down weeping uncontrollably, sobbing, Because he says they don't understand what this is all about. He went into the eastern gates, went up on the temple platform, and he walked around and observed. He looked round about upon all things, and now eventide was come. He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. Mark then records that the next morning after spending the night in Bethany, The next morning, Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem onto the temple platform and did what Luke's accounting records that we read just a moment ago. Now, why did Jesus Christ go to the temple? From Jesus' perspective, the problem is not political. Oh, there's all kinds of problems in Israel. There's every 
every imaginable problem, social problems, ecological problems, political problems, financial problems. There's all kinds of problems in Israel. But from Jesus' perspective, the problem is not those problems. The problem is religious. Not freedom from military enslavement, but freedom from the enslavement of sin. And Jesus Christ didn't come to bring freedom from government. He came to bring freedom from sin. The problem was religious apostasy. And that's the real problem Jesus would solve. And so he attacks the heart of that problem. He attacks the heart of Israel's religious system. Now, as so often is the case when you read and study the Bible, if you don't understand history and if you don't understand geography and if you don't understand what the people thought when they read the Bible the first time, the people to whom the Bible was written, you can read the Bible and have all kinds of funny ideas and scratch your head and wonder what this and wonder that. It's important to understand the Bible from the perspective of the people who received the Bible when the Holy Spirit wrote that book. And so it's important to understand a little bit about what was going on in the temple complex that caused Jesus Christ to do what he did on that day. What is the temple? Well, the temple's a complex of, of a number of buildings. Now, if you were to go over to Israel today, I showed you this picture a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I took this picture from the top of the Mount of Olives. And so uh, the vantage point of this picture today, Israel today, Jerusalem today, from the top of the Mount of Olives, looking westward down the, down the slope of the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, up through the eastern gates onto the temple platform. And that is the wall that goes around the temple platform. That's the way it is today. But I show this because I want you to notice the amount of space all around. Here's an aerial view. The Mount of Olives is over here. The Kidron Valley, the eastern gates are right here. And again, you can see the massive amount of space all around the temple platform. These, by the way, are the stairs coming up from the city of David. The ancient city of David's right here. These are the stairs leading up. Those are the very stairs that Jesus Christ walked on. Their era, first century, they're Jesus, the, 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 the Jerusalem that Jesus lived in. And uh, we, we were, our group was on those stairs. We had a little Bible lesson on those stairs. This is the pinnacle of the temple. Of course, this wall has been rebuilt uh, from the time that, uh, that it was torn down. Uh, the pictures I showed you of the stones that are still crying out are right around the corner right there. They were laying right there. This is the pinnacle. That's where Satan told Jesus, uh, if, if you'll go up to the pinnacle of the temple and jump off and let the angels catch you in midair, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. These are people going down to the western wall where they will pray because that's the closest they can get and pray to the Temple Mount where it is believed that the temple uh, stood. So that's Israel today. Here's a depiction of Israel in Jesus' day on this next slide. This is the history, a, a model of uh, a picture of the temple platform as you would have seen it from the Mount of Olives. This is what Jesus would have seen when he crested the Mount of Olives looking through the eastern gates and into the temple that 
uh, had been built by Zerubbabel with Haggai and Zechariah encouraging the people to complete the construction. Herod, of course, expanded the temple platform, made it a, a much bigger platform and embellished the building. Here's the Temple of Jesus Day. Notice again the amount of space. You had to come up from the city of David, up the stairs, through some doors, up a, a covered staircase. You had to come onto the platform area here. Same thing. You had to come in and up and been on the platform. That's what Jesus saw. And then one more picture. This is uh, a model that gives you a better feel for the expansiveness because you can look at the little people and you can get a scale feeling of the expansiveness of this area. Jesus Christ, when he came into Jerusalem on the evening, on the late afternoon of Sunday, Palm Sunday, Jesus went through these gates, came up onto the temple platform, and he walked all around the temple platform, observing all the stuff that was happening on the temple platform. What was happening on the temple platform? What did Jesus observe? That Mark records that Jesus looked round about upon all things. This is what is known, uh, was known, it was called the court of the Gentiles. All of this area was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could go up there. Once you went into the actual temple facility complex, off the court of the Gentiles, you went into the court of the women, and then, the, then you went into the court of, the, of Israel, and then you went into the, uh, where you could look through the doors and, 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 and see the priest's activity and all of that. But the court of the Gentiles, Jesus walked all over the court of the Gentiles. And you know what was happening? The bazaar of Annas was happening. You say, what in the world is the bazaar of Annas, and who is he anyway? Well, Annas was the Roman-appointed high priest in Jerusalem. Annas and Caiaphas are mentioned in the scriptures associated with the death of John the Baptist, with the death of Jesus Christ, and with the persecution of the early church after the resurrection of Christ. Annas was the head of a clan. He and his five sons and his son-in-law ruled the temple platform for, uh, for uh, a lengthy period of time. They were Roman-appointed individuals. What is the bazaar that is called the Annas of Bazaar? Remember, this is Passover season. Estimates of two million people are in and around Jerusalem. A couple of hundred thousand people on the temple platform. And there on the temple, there's tents everywhere. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem expanded and it was a tent city past Bethany to the to the east, down to Bethlehem to the south. It was a, a massive number of people that were there in Jerusalem for the Passover season. Why were they there? Well, of course, they were there for the Passover season to celebrate the memory of their forefathers escaping the slavery of Egypt as a result of the blood of the Passover lambs. Thousands and thousands of lambs will be Slaughtered this week during Passover as Jesus Christ, uh, as the, as the, uh, the bazaar of Annas is going on. Now, now think, think of the bazaar of Annas this way. Think of tens of thousands of people on the court of the Gentiles and think about kind of the, the, uh, uh, cross between a bazaar, a county fair, and, and a flea market. All of that space in that 
court of the Gentiles was booths and pins of animals and tables of money. This was the bazaar of Annas. This was the swamp of Jerusalem where the high priest and all of the priests of, 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 of Jerusalem were skimming off the money of the poor. Here's how it worked. You needed a lamb. You have to have a spotless lamb. And so you bring your spotless lamb for Passover to sacrifice. Well, before your spotless lamb can be sacrificed, it has to be approved by a priest. And so the priest investigates your lamb. Now, you have to pay him to investigate your lamb. And then your lamb will invariably be declined. They'll find a blemish somewhere. Now you don't have a lamb. No problem. There are pins of already certified animals. And so you can buy a lamb. The price, well, it happens to be ten times its normal value. But you don't have enough money to buy a lamb. No problem. The book of Leviticus says that if you're poor, you can bring two pigeons. Two pigeons would normally sell, maybe in today's vernacular, for a quarter. Maybe a quarter each. Maybe 50 cents for a couple of pigeons. No problem. We've got pigeons. You can't afford a lamb. You can buy one of our pigeons. Here are two pigeons. The price for two pigeons is $20. Now, who are all these people buying and selling animals? And, and, and uh, they are the people who bought booth space from Annas. Annas sold booth space to the merchandisers who would sell the oxen and the, and the pigeons and and, and the incense and all the different things, like a flea market. It's a massive flea market with people buying and selling stuff they needed to have in order to participate in Passover week. Oh, you don't have any temple currency. Oh, that's unfortunate. We don't accept your local currency here. You have to buy your lamb or your pigeon and your incense and all this stuff, and you also have to pay the temple tax to be able to sacrifice your animal here, but we only accept the temple currency, which is a Tyrian shekel. Now, the Tyrian shekel was a coin minted in the city of Tyre outside of Israel. It had a pagan god's emblem on it. His name was Melkirk. And he was associated with Baal, Hercules, and Beelzebub, depending on where you lived. Why did they use this shekel with an idol on it? Because it had more silver in it. It was heavier, and it contained more silver content than all the local currencies. And Annas wanted silver. But no problem. We have people that will exchange your money. For a fair bank rate, no doubt. And they will exchange your money, your local currency, into the Tyrian shekel so that you can buy your pigeons or buy your lamb and buy your incense and pay your temple tax and be able to participate in Passover week. Hmm. And then when it was all over, Annas skimmed a fee off the top of every transaction that occurred 
in the booths of all of the merchandisers that he had rented the space to for them to do business. And the rich got richer. And the poor got poorer. And Annas was a millionaire. He lived in luxury. All from the sweat of the people of Israel. And Jesus walked through that bazaar on Sunday late afternoon. As he had done four years earlier. And he took in the corruption. And he watched what religion had come to. The Messiah was announced by the Old Testament prophet that he would be the Prince of Peace. The angels told the shepherds, peace on earth. The New Testament epistles present him as the securer of peace with God. For we who are enemies of God by our sin and rebellion. And Jesus Christ was an instrument bringing peace to the people of Israel. But religion was a barrier to peace. Religion was about money and prestige and position. And Jesus walked through the bazaar of Annas. And no doubt, when he went back to Bethany that night, I can imagine Jesus Christ tossing and turning all night long, not being able to get out of his mind what he had observed, not being able to forget the horror of everything that he had watched there in Jerusalem on the temple platform. All the thievery, all the charlatans, all the phonies and hypocrites. This was Jerusalem's swamp. This was the deep state. This was the ruling class of Jerusalem making a mockery of God and religion and skimming the money off the poor so that the rich class could forever be richer and richer. One thing's for certain. What Jesus Christ saw Sunday afternoon determined what he would do on Monday morning. And I have no doubt that that night Jesus Christ thought long and hard about what he saw in Jerusalem's swamp. And so our text says in verse number 45, this would have been Monday morning. He went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought. Let me read Mark's description of the same event. It's a little bit more graphic. Mark recorded it this way. Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Do you have an imaginative mind? Can you imagine that Monday morning when Jesus Christ came up onto the temple platform? 
And there, as he had seen the afternoon before, all of the bazaars, all of the booths, all of the animals, all of the the activities that were going on. Now, this was not a calm reaction by Jesus Christ. He did not walk up to a money changer and say, hey, buddy, you know, this really isn't the appropriate thing to be doing here. He didn't walk over to someone selling lambs for ten times their value or to a priest that was examining people's lambs that they brought, looking for that blemish, that little pimple that will give him an excuse to make them buy his lamb. He didn't just go over to them and say, hey, guys, you know, this isn't fair. Jesus Christ strode onto that platform as a mighty man with zeal in his heart for God. He walked up to a table and he just flipped that table over and coins went scattering everywhere. He said, get out of here. He walked over and he turned over some more tables and he, and he knocked over some, some, some uh, barricades that were holding the animals in. You, see the, you saw the size of that temple platform. One man turned that entire temple platform into a commotion of ruckus activity with coins scattered everywhere. Animals now with no owners running the crowd of people scurrying and running, the animals, the pigeons flying away, tables overturned, Jesus Christ saying, get out of here! And Mark said that he wouldn't even allow them to carry their merchandise with them. They couldn't pick up their coins. They couldn't gather up their animals. Just get off my platform! This is ruckus. This is one man. Can you imagine with your imagination the scene, the activity? One man on that entire bazaar of Annas turning the whole temple platform into a, a, a commotion of animals and coins and people running and people fleeing. They knew he meant business, and they ran. They didn't get their their merchandise. They didn't get their property. They didn't pick up their stuff. He wouldn't allow them to carry their stuff. Just get out of here. I hope it's recorded. I hope when I get to heaven, God has the link, and he's going to share the link so we can stream it and watch it. Can you imagine watching that take place? Jesus Christ said, this is my house. This is my house. Get off my platform. This is mine. The problem was not political. The problem was not financial. The problem was religious in nature. This is bold. This is physical. This is explosive display of righteous anger. I can only say, wow. What a picture God paints of that day 
when Jesus showed up in his house to drain the swamp. Well, now that you know what happened that day, let me close the message with the message. Three observations. Observation number one, observing Jesus' actions. And you'll notice a one, two, and a three. Jesus attacked religious apostasy. There is absolute truth, by the way. Regardless of what the modern day culture says, there is absolute truth. There is right and there is wrong. And it's not yours to determine what is right and what is wrong. You don't have your truth. There is truth. It is absolute. It is right. And anything contrary to that is wrong, regardless of what our modern culture tells us about relativism. Nobody has a right to own their own truth. When Jesus strode onto that platform, he was a minority. But you know something? He was in truth. And everyone else was wrong. And only Jesus was right. Jesus Christ attacked religious apostasy. You see, truth helps people. Jesus came. He didn't come as a warrior. He didn't come to do that. He did that as a reaction to the apostasy that religion had devolved into. He came as an instrument of peace. But do you know something? Truth helps people. I remember reading a story when one of the big tsunamis hit in Southeast Asia. And a little girl was on the beach with her family. And she had just studied about tsunamis. And because she had just studied in school about tsunamis, she noticed some things that didn't seem quite right. And everyone else was just having a great time on the beach. And she began to realize there is a tidal wave approaching. You couldn't see it. The water was calm. Everyone was lollicking around and having a wonderful time. And she went berserk. She was just a little girl. She went berserk. She went running up and down the beach screaming to everyone, Get out of here! Get off the beach! There's a tsunami coming! Most people ignored her and continued to play. Some people began to look around and grab their stuff and got off the beach. And within a few moments, a tsunami, that tidal wave came through and multitudes and multitudes of people were killed. Now, that little girl disrupted their fun. That little girl disrupted their plans. That little girl disrupted their frolicking in the sun. By telling them the truth. And for a little while, those who heeded her warning lost their fun for the day. But lived to see another day. The ones who ignored her died that day. You know, telling the truth will someone sometimes rob someone of their frolicking for a little while. But a hundred years from now, They'll be thanking that instrument of peace who told them the truth about what was coming 
and enabled them to prepare for the inevitable tidal wave that would take them out and leave them in hell for all of eternity. The truth helps people. The truth turned into falsehood hurts people. Truth turned into falsehood is worthy of being attacked. Apostate religion sends people to hell. Lies that tell people, live a good life, get baptized, jump through these religious ceremonial hoops, and that will make you a Christian and you'll be able to be a Christian forever. And leaves a person with no salvation, no transformation, no relationship with Jesus Christ, still the enemy of God and unawares of the danger ahead of them, truth turned into error hurts people. And therefore, truth turned into error is worthy of attack. The Bible says in Romans 16, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Why avoid them? Because false doctrine hurts people. Jude 3 says we're to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. God delivered the truth. We've got it in a book called the Bible. Our job is to be an instrument of peace and take that book to a world that doesn't know that book. So they can come to know a Savior that they don't know. Telling them the truth that they're going to hell is not unkind. Telling them the truth that their false religion will send them to hell is not unkind. Telling people the truth and helping them to understand apostasy is the kindest thing you can do to a person. Jesus Christ stood for truth and attacked religious apostasy. By the way, Jesus' most pointed sermons that you'll read in the gospel accounts are sermons directed to the swamp in Jerusalem. We're going to see some of that as we go through this week. And Jesus addresses that swamp on some different days. The, the sermons that Jesus Christ preached to these political religious thieves were very caustic. Because he was dealing with those who were leading people to hell. The blind leading the blind, both falling into a ditch. Going around the world to make one proselyte and you're two, four, twofold more uh, a child of hell than before. These, these are statements that came from the lips of Jesus during this week of his passion as he, as he sought to drain the swamp of Jerusalem. Here's a second statement under Jesus' actions. Jesus is concerned with truth. His purpose is to seek and to save the lost. The lost can only be sought and saved by people who are instruments of Jesus' peace and take to them the wonderful, glorious message of salvation. Jesus was consumed with bringing people to God's truth, God's love, God's forgiveness, all based on the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not hinging on man's efforts to be able to earn God's favor, but rather on Jesus' accomplishment on the cross of Calvary. Jesus is concerned with truth. And when someone leaves someone with the idea that they can earn their way to heaven by their religiosity, that is apostasy. And Jesus was attacking apostasy because he was concerned with truth. 
Jesus would say on this very week, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And the disciples, after his resurrection, will say at Acts 4, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Jesus was consumed with truth, because truth is the only thing that will help people for eternity. And this horrendous day of Monday, when Jesus came onto that platform, and just exploded with indignation and attacked apostate religion, it was because he loved the people that that religion was sending to hell. We need to stand against false religion. We need to attack false religion that damns the souls of people to hell because we're concerned with truth. And then the third statement there, Jesus is angry when truth becomes error and hurts people. Jesus is love. He is compassion. His ministry revealed that he loved people. But you can't love health without hating cancer. You can't love God without hating Satan. You can't love truth without hating error. You can't love what sends a sinner to heaven without hating what keeps a sinner damned to hell. And that's why Jesus came unglued on the temple platform at the bazaar of Annas and displayed his anger toward everything that was going there. The degree to which Jesus' actions revealed his anger is reciprocal to the degree to which he loved the people who were being led into hell by that apostasy. You know, the, the old physics, you know, equal and Opposite reaction. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Why did Jesus do what he did? Because of how much he loved those people? He didn't do that because he hated people. He did that as a reaction from his love for people that needed to hear the truth in Jerusalem. The truth that he had come to bring as the instrument of peace. Let me make a second observation. Jesus' words, he He strolled onto his turf. He said, my house, my house. And you are on my property. This is my turf. Jesus' house is not the White House. Jesus' house is not Congress. Jesus' house is not the Supreme Court. You know where Jesus' house is? Wherever his followers meet together and do what? My house shall be called a house of prayer. Where God's people come together to pray and to communicate with God and to worship him over what? Over the subject of the gospel. The place where his people gather together to focus on him and his purpose for the world. Mark's accounting of this completes the full statement. Jesus said, My house shall be called unto all nations a house of prayer. This is world evangelism. This is missions at its finest. Jesus said, My house is where my people gather together and communicate with me about all nations in the world and their need for the peace that I bring 
on the cross of Calvary this upcoming Friday afternoon. My house shall be called a house of prayer. God never intended His house to become a shelter and cover for those who lie and steal and cheat and abuse people. A den of thieves, Jesus said. My house shall be is a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves, a, a den of, of, of those who, who, who take from other people to profit themselves. God never intended for church to be a place where people hurt others. God helped some organizations. And we used to blame the Catholics and say, look at what the priests do to little boys. And then we read about an independent Baptist pastor who covered for his youth pastor who had been, been committing sin of a moral nature with, with people in the church. And, and when, it was, when the pastor found out, he just shipped him off to another state, to another youth department, because he didn't want to deal with the fallout in his own town. Listen, it happens in independent Baptist churches too. God help every church when those people stand before God and give an account for what was occurring in God's house. God never intended God's house to be a shelter, a den, a place of shelter, a place of where, where, where thieves could hide and find shelter uh, to, to be able to act out their mischievous deeds. God never intended the temple platform to be a place where a high priest could become a millionaire off the backs of the people of Israel. That's not God's plan. And Jesus cleaned house because they had made God's house a den where thieves could lurk and hide and operate and steal and cheat and abuse and hurt under the cover of their religiosity. Oh, buy my lamb, offer my lamb, and you will be right with God. God help churches who under the cover of religion abuse people by teaching them false plans of salvation, or abuse them in any other way. This was a horrible situation. And Jesus Christ focused us once again on the real purpose of His house as a place where people commune with God in prayer about a world in need. Sometime go back and read the dedication sermon and the dedication prayer that Solomon gave on the day that he dedicated the first temple on this very site. Read again the dedication prayer as he said, God, if your people pray, would you hear? God, if your people pray, would you hear? God, if your people pray, would you you hear? God, if, if your people pray, would you hear? God, in this situation, if your people pray, will you hear us, God? Because God's house is a place of communication with God. It's not a place of entertainment. It's not a place of social involvement. It's a place where God's people in the Old Testament, at the temple, in the New Testament, at every local church, gather together for the purpose of communicating with God over the thing that God is most concerned about. And that's peace to unsaved people all over the world. By the way, you know how Solomon ended his prayer of dedication of the first temple? 
He said to the people, after he had prayed the dedication prayer, he said to the people, Let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as a matter shall require, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord that Jehovah is God and that there is none else. Missions. World evangelism. God, would you hear us when we come together, when we pray, when we meet in prayer meetings, we gather together. God, would you hear us as we gather to focus on what you focus on, to be concerned with what you're concerned about. To make your house a place of communication with you about the nations of the world. That all the world may know that Jehovah is God and there is none other God. There is none other name given among men that can bring salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Is prayer for the gospel to impact the world the purpose of our gathering in this place? Is that why we're here? Jesus came to America today, I don't think he'd go to the White House. I don't think he'd go to the Congress. I don't think he'd go to the Supreme Court. I think he'd come right here and talk to us about whether we're here today to communicate with God about the thing that he's most concerned about. And that's to bring peace to the nations of the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we as a church family focus on what Jesus Christ is focused on? The problem is not political. The problem is religious. The problem is not Congress. The problem is churches that have left the truth of the gospel for all other kinds of things. And you know something? There's a lot of... Jesus Christ did not come to fix the world ecology. And Jesus Christ did not come to fix inequities. Jesus Christ did not come to fix political matters. Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And people can give their lives for a lot of good causes, but there's only one cause that Jesus Christ has. It's the salvation of souls. That's Jesus Christ. One last observation, Jesus' impact. The country preacher would say, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, you can tell which one you hit by the sound of the yelp of one dog. When Jesus Christ strolled through the Annas, or the, the bazaar of Annas and made all of that commotion that day, you can tell who the rock hit in the next verse. Verse number 47 says the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. When Jesus attacks apostate churches, cults, and world religions that are based on error, and Jesus attacks the religious worship of a people, you can tell who the rock hit. By those who yelped the loudest. 
And they said, we've got to get rid of him. No, they didn't get on their knees and beg for forgiveness. They didn't say, oh my God, what have we created in Jerusalem? God, forgive us. No, they said, we're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. We're going to get rid of this outsider who came in to drain the swamp. We are going to destroy Jesus. But they had a problem. You know what their problem was? The masses of the people couldn't get enough of him. The masses of the people came to his rallies every morning on the temple platform. The people couldn't get enough of him. But the religious leaders knew they had to kill him. Now, lest you think this was a political sermon about President Trump coming to office three and a half years ago and the promise to drain Washington swamp of the political millionaires who fleece America's and rich themselves, I want you to understand. I don't want you to give any false impressions. America is not Israel. The American government is not God's religion. The American government is about militarily protecting Americans from former from foreign enemy powers. And the American government is about preserving our liberty and freedom from tyranny here as we live on this earth. But Jesus is not about that. He's about seeking and saving the lost to keep them out of hell. He's about bringing freedom from sin that enslaves people eternally. And he's about establishing peace with God for all of eternity. He was not about solving the political problems that Israel had with Rome. He was not about relieving the poverty and disease that was in the world or the solving the inequities of the world or preserving the ecology of the world. When we give ourselves to meeting those kind of needs, it's kind of like restructuring or resetting the deck chairs on the Titanic. So it can look a little nicer for the night. But it's not going to change what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. To make a difference for all of eternity. Not a short fix for a little while on earth. He'll come the next time to fix everything else. And he will come the next time to fix everything else. But in his first coming... He came to seek and to save the lost. And our focus must remain the same. And I wonder what Jesus would say if he visited the churches of America today. Because I don't think he'd go to Washington. I think he'd start visiting churches to find out if religion has become apostate in America.